Dear Dad, I've told you some things that I've been through, but not everything. So here it is. In the early years of primary school, I started to get bullied. It was every day by a couple of people, and it was both physical and mental bullying. Out of this came depression, anxiety, and an eating disorder. I tried to hide it from everyone in my life. My family, my friends, my teachers, everyone. This made everything just get worse. I would start to eat in secret. I couldn't eat in front of anyone. And I would just tr- go home and cry every day. The school did nothing. Instead of trying to deal with the bullies, they just made me the problem and tried to fix me. I started going to therapy. But the only thing that the therapist would address was the depression and anxiety and never the eating disorder. Developing a healthy body image and self-esteem is all part of growing up for both girls and boys. But for many teens, it can feel like an uphill battle. The image-conscious world we live in constantly tells us that how we look is not okay. And the growth of social media has, in some ways, made it an even bigger battle to feel happy in your own skin. Throw bullying into the mix and children face all kinds of challenges from the playground to the wild world of online communication. So imagine you've suffered in silence with an eating disorder and bouts of bullying for years without telling the people around you. This was Amelia's experience, but now Amelia is speaking out about what happened to her, to her school, her parents, and with us, which takes a special kind of bravery. Hi, I'm Rebecca Sparrow, and this is Navigating Parenthood, Talking to Teens, brought to you by HCF, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund. And today we're learning how to talk about a teenager's experience of eating disorders and bullying. This podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice. For health concerns, speak to your doctor. HCF doesn't endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. If the podcast makes you feel depressed or anxious and you need to talk to someone straight away, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Amelia, thank you for sharing your letter with us. And hi, Tim, Amelia's dad. Thank you both for having a chat with me. Em, in your speech, you said bullying started in primary school. Can you tell us what happened? Well, in primary school, I was any other student. I started in kindy with everyone else. I had some friends. It was all fine. And then in about year one, year two, the bullying started. And it was not a lot at first, just getting pushed around a little bit or some mean comments being said, nothing more than that. Then it started to get worse and it was every day, all day, getting punched, getting kicked, getting made fun of, everything. And how did you respond? Did you go to the teachers? I was terrified. I told no one ever. I was too scared to, too embarrassed, too ashamed, thinking I'd be called out as being the snitch and then I'd get bullied more. So you're having this horrendous experience at school. You must have hated going to school. Oh, it was the worst. I'd get up every morning, cry, put on my uniform, put on, try and put on a brave face, walk into school, 
get bullied, sit in the bathroom and cry, go home, sit at home and cry. Like, Were the teachers aware? Um, occasionally in class people would say something or kick me under the table, but the teachers never noticed. So, Tim, Amelia's getting up in the morning. It's primary school. Were you seeing her sort of, like, do you look back and, and see signs? I did know it was happening and the teachers did know, but not in the early years. Uh, I witnessed one time where a, the particular boy uh, pushed her into a block of classrooms and held the door closed and I could see her beating her hands on it. So you were there? Yeah. And and it was the primary block or the infant's block, so it must have been in her early years. I didn't see that as a pattern. I just saw that as a one-off thing, thinking what a cruel little kid. Yeah. And... It was then over time that we would see Amelia being so unhappy and we worked out that it was because of bullying and she told us about the bullying and then we went through the process of talking to her teacher, talking to the headmaster, talking to the counsellor, none of which brought about any success because the parents of the two main bullies were never informed that their children were bullies mm. and it was all about rectifying Amelia as though something was wrong with her, as though she was the person who needed to be um, changed, mm. not the bullies. And I found this obviously very frustrating. I just want to take a step back just for a moment because I'll get back to that, um, Tim. But I guess from a parent's point of view, Amelia, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking parents are so concerned and fearful of, of their children being bullied and, and we sort of desperately want our children to tell us. Can you explain to me again what you were thinking of why you thought it was better not initially to tell your mum and dad? The reason I didn't tell my parents, I wasn't really thinking about what the bad side of it was. I was just more thinking about how I was ashamed, terrified, scared, worried that something would come out of it and... That there'd be like payback. That payback. You would you would dob on the the bullies. Absolutely. They'd get in trouble, and then they, it would be worse for you. I was also trying to be very independent. Absolutely, I can completely understand that. It's just interesting for us to get that insight from you, because as parents, we think, why wouldn't you come and tell us? But you're that's making complete sense to me. How long do you think the bullying had been going on before your dad? saw something and saw a moment where you are being essentially beaten up at school? Maybe two or three years. It was going on from year one, pretty much. So what was going through your mind at that time? It really takes a huge toll on your mental state because I can remember feeling I'm worthless. I don't deserve to be here. I, I'm not as important as anyone else. Was it a relief for you when your parents finally, when you kind of opened up and told them? Did you feel like now, okay, I've got help? It did for a little bit, but when things weren't getting better, they were just getting worse. It just felt like because nothing's getting better and I have told people. And nothing's changing. And nothing's changing. Mm. Tim, let's go back to, you know, the huge thing really that you said to me earlier was that you went to the school and how many meetings did you say that you had? With the principal, about 15. And this is primary school, isn't it? That's right. Mm -hmm. And with the individual teachers, fewer than that, but still a number of, of meetings because I thought go to the, the head. If it is a cultural thing, it needed to be changed from the head down. But it seemed that the system was that 
you can't punish those who commit the offence. You have to treat the victim. Mm. And they even sent Amelia off to learn how to be with people school, where she went off with a bunch of other girls to learn how to interact as though that will toughen her up or something. How did that make you feel when you think, okay, Dad's going to have meetings with the principal, you know, we're making it official, we're standing up to this, you know, moment, I'm doing all the things that all the brochures and websites say, told someone, speak to the school, and you're being told that really it's on your shoulders. I mean, fancy being told to toughen up. Oh, it was absolutely awful. I can remember when they informed me that I'd be going to this almost like a school. It was with a couple of other girls. It felt like I was just being pushed out, like they didn't want to help me in any way, so they're just going to push me away. And to be excluded also from the school, I felt like I was not part of the school. I was just a kid who attended. Did your mental health and how you felt, did it get worse? Oh, absolutely. So it's getting worse. So you've... (laughs) It's nearly unbelievable. Because there was still the bullying, there was still the being made fun of, still the teasing, but on top of that I was being excluded and trying to be separated from the rest of the school. Because their attitude is, well, just avoid those people, Amelia, or you're too sensitive or toughen up. And you can't avoid those people because even though we'd spoken to the school, the next years after that, I was still in their class. Yeah, we said, don't put her in with this particular boy and less of the girl, but this boy, because he was so physical. And Every year I was in his class. Could you talk to your parents about how you were feeling? No, I didn't feel I could talk to them. I probably could have, but I just felt so alone in the situation that I couldn't talk to anyone really. And and meanwhile, are you taking on the messages of the bullies and just thinking maybe this is my fault? Did you take that yes. or did you take the opposite? You did, yeah. Absolutely. It wasn't till I left the school that I actually realised what they were saying was not the truth. And that was pretty big to realise that I'd gone through this for f- almost five years. Like mm. what I thought I lived every day was the truth wasn't. And Tim, you must have felt completely helpless in this situation of knowing what do you do next? If you take it to the the person at the top and they're not responding in how you'd hoped, what were you thinking then? Well, there's there's two aspects to it. One is that Amelia has always strived to be independent and her mother and my job at the time, we were fix our jobs professionally were to fix things. So we would try and fix the thing. And that just made her tell us less. Mm. But physically you could see that she would she'd put herself in the mold of the victim. She we could see that she was the saddest kid going off to school knowing that it was going to happen. And like she wouldn't see that my wife and I were in tears together. <sighs> Yeah, it's so emotional. It's very difficult. And then the only thing at the end was just to throw money at it. Yeah. I'm thinking of all the parents listening, would you have done anything differently? What would you tell them about if their child's in this situation, what do you think they should do? Break the rules, go to the parents, tell them that their kid is being a bully. Right. So you think your advice would be speak to the the parents of the Not in an aggressive way, but just... Not in an aggressive way, but... These people were completely unaware. Mm. And on top of that, after I left the school, a couple of weeks later, I ran into 
the mother of the main boy, and she asked me, why, like, why'd you move? Where, like, what's your new school like? And I said, well, I moved because I was getting seriously bullied. Um, I didn't say by her son. She had no clue. And, and weirdly, it's because I've been brought up in a society where you go by the rules. Going by the rules was absolutely the wrong thing for me to have done but I didn't know that at the time. I thought if there's a set of rules, it must be because those rules will bring about something that will bring about a good situation. Absolutely. Well, you were doing the right thing, following the protocol that is there of reporting to the principal and you have an expectation. And you know, I should point out, every child has a right to feel safe and to be safe at school. Let's move on now, though, to the fact that you changed schools in year five? Year five, yes. Tell me about that experience. I thought it would be the best experience ever. I was so excited. I thought new school, new life, and then a couple of weeks in, I lost a family member Mm -hmm. very suddenly and everything just came crashing down. Before the incident, my mood was up. I was happy. I was enjoying school. And then after the incident, my mood was at the bottom. I couldn't not get through a day without crying. And at what point, Tim, are you then thinking, we need professional help? Did that come into your mind or are you still thinking, no, we'll fix this? Or are you now thinking she's absolutely hit rock bottom? How many counsellors have you seen, Amelia? Maybe about 15. Um, and it, so we, we moved into having to pay. If the public system isn't working, you start to pay. Because she's so smart, she would convince all of them except the latest one. The latest one has made a difference. Explain to me what you're thinking when you're going to the counsellor and they're trying to help you and you're doing the whole, I'm fine, you know. And I think we've all done it to a point when somebody said, are you okay? And we say, I'm fine. So what were you thinking in that moment of of why you were kind of still maybe keeping a wall up or resisting? I felt I didn't want to look vulnerable and also I didn't want to let anyone in because if I did let someone in in the past, nothing got better, nothing helped. So as you said, I had this wall built up that I let no one in. Tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe you're thinking, there's no point to this. I've been down this road where people say they're going to help me and nothing changes. Is that sort of sort of jaded feeling of not trusting that people are actually going to help you? Yes, I had no trust for anyone really, except my parents and my family. No one, absolutely no one I trusted. Did anyone really reach you and connect with you? There was a school counsellor I went to in year five at this new school when... I lost the first family member. She really helped. She would talk about how I was feeling and she would just ask me straight up, I don't want you to tell me you're fine. I just want you to tell me how you are, honestly. And I would say, I'm not good. I'm sad. I'm feeling awful all the time. My family is also sad, which I can't help because I'm always trying to fix problems like my parents. Mm. And that slowly turned into a depression and anxiety, which made everything worse. Tell me about this year five counsellor. So she would be 
clearly persistent in not letting you off the hook in saying, I, you know, sit down, I really want to know how you're feeling. And what else did she help you with? She helped me find the root of many things, including the eating disorder, the sadness, things like that. And how did she do that? Uh, She would tell me to sit back, shut my eyes and think back. Just go back through the earlier years of primary school and find where it all started, where I remember it starting. And for something like the eating disorder, it was I would take a boiled egg to school sometimes to have as a snack. And in year one, I got bullied for eating an egg as recess. And so I felt the need to go and hide in the bathroom and eat it when no one could see me. I doubled with that, that when it was a rainy day and so they had to have their food inside the classroom and the teacher called her out for eating an egg saying that how bad it smelled. And so that just fueled the kids, gave so them permission. So shaming and feeling a sense of shame that you've done something wrong. And I, so I'm at home saying, not. take an egg, it's great food. I haven't eaten a boiled egg since. That, I mean, that's so fascinating that that's how powerful this stuff can be and how painful it Absolutely. can be. Absolutely. The smell, I, re, I know I, the smell of a boiled eggs brings me back to that moment and makes me think about having to hide in the bathroom and then getting shamed by my teacher for trying to eat a healthy recess instead of eating a bag of chips. In terms of your feelings about food, how did they then change? They changed to then eat in secret, to not show people what I'm eating or that I'm eating. Also, when I'd get, for example, lunch at the canteen, I would wait for maybe 30 minutes into lunch when everyone had gone to go and get food because I was so ashamed. What grade are you in at this point? Year one, year two, so six, seven years old. Are you communicating any of this to your parents? No, none at all. Not till end of year three, early year four, did I even tell my parents. So it was a couple of years of feeling like this before I... And what did you say to them? Do you remember? I think they said to me that something they know something's going on and then I just said, I'm being bullied by these people. I feel awful all the time. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to be there. Get me out. Tim, did you notice in terms of um, Em's relationship with food that there were changes? Did, was that a red flag that you picked up? Oh, absolutely. And you're told as a parent that you know, food is such a sensitive issue and that you can really mess kids up if you don't approach it the right way. So you know, we did lots of reading on food, about how to talk about food, which then doesn't necessarily marry with passion and love, that you care so much, you do make missteps. You do say, are you eating the wrong thing, in much more colourful language than that, are you eating the wrong thing? We send you healthy food to school and it comes back in your bag. Um and yet you're gaining weight uh, and you eat the family meal or don't eat much of it and then go to bed, but you're gaining weight. And how do you say these things without having an impact? And so we were very clumsy and we weren't consistent because we didn't know what to do. We got emotional versus applying intellect and it 
was too confusing. I did, we didn't know what to, the, the house was a mess. It was a mess. Uh, you know what, Tim? I think that you are representing thousands of parents everywhere who feel overwhelmed and don't know how to navigate this road because it is really difficult and confusing and we're sent mixed messages. And so many parents, you know, the majority of parents have their children's best well-being at heart, but we're not experienced in this area, are we? And so we are very clumsy and, and make mistakes. So I'm going to bring in Mitch Doyle, who's the lived experience coordinator at the Butterfly Foundation, which provides support, advice and recovery programs for people experiencing eating disorders. Welcome, Mitch. Do you hear this a lot, Mitch, from parents of going, I don't know what to do and and probably stuffing it up and help us? Absolutely. Um, I think first and foremost with eating disorders is that we need to remember that they're incredibly complex. Um, there is a heavy focus on that it is all to do with eating food. Mm. You know, and I think what both Tim and Amelia have highlighted so poignantly is that there are a lot of issues underneath that drive these kind of um, disordered eating behavior. Um, and it's not until you get to the root cause of these things that um, we start to understand what are actually the kind of mechanisms that drive eating disorders. Um, so a lot of the things are, oh, why don't you just eat? cut out certain foods, whatever it is. Um, but until you kind of get into the nitty gritty of therapy and stuff like that and understanding what are the thoughts, what are the beliefs, what are the drivers of eating disorders that are manifesting in this disordered eating behavior is not until we kind of fully understand what's what's occurring. I'm thinking of the parents listening. What advice would you have for them if they're thinking, hmm, there's something going on with my child with food and they feel out of their depth? Can you talk me through what the red flags would be and what their approach should perhaps be? First and foremost, as a parent, you know your child. You know your child best. So so if there is something that is kind of rising that is causing you to, to have a little bit of concern, trust your intuition around that. Like changes in behaviour. Changes in behaviour. If there is a focus on um, weight, if there's a focus on size, if there's a focus on body shape, if there's a focus on, you know, perhaps changing eating behavior, if that's starting to kind of come into conversation with with your child, then that may be a, a little bit of a red flag that you may want to reach out for for some guidance around. Um, you know, the Butterfly National Helpline is a um, is a service at Butterfly that involves trained counsellors who speak to parents, who speak to health professionals, teachers, and people who are experiencing eating disorders as well to kind of give you those um, tools and tricks and skills to kind of navigate those those changes and fluctuations in behaviour. And you're talking about the fact that you'd had quite a few negative experiences with counsellors, and yet the Butterfly Foundation helpline, was it that you found that really useful? Can you explain that to me? I really found the helpline quite useful because one of the things that I was struggling was talking to ah. someone face to face and then calling someone on the helpline who didn't know me, who I didn't have to see in person was this whole new thing. It was, I could just say everything, say how I was feeling and not worry about, for example, if I was crying because they couldn't see that or if I was just wanting to sit in my bed and talk or if I was at school at lunch, whatever it was, I could just talk how I was feeling in the moment. I have never thought of that. That's so true that, that you don't have to, it's not face-to-face and you don't have to have that moment of fronting up in front of someone and that it's just that anonymity, I guess, of just being able to call them and, and get advice. 
This is the first time I've ever heard that Amelia called the butterfly line. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. This is this. How interesting in this episode. We're just there's so many takeaways from this because it had not even occurred to me. Of course, I've heard about hotlines before and phone lines, but it hadn't occurred to me that for so many kids, fronting up in front of someone can be an incredibly difficult experience and just having somebody, again, what do we know about tweens and teens? That whole thing of making eye contact with people can be incredibly difficult. And the loathing of knowing you have an appointment coming up. I would see it in the media that she knew today was the day she had to go and see the counsellor and she was the day before talking about how she didn't want to be it and, and having something be in your control at your timing, not the system's timing, I think makes perfect sense too. Absolutely. You call when you need it which is something that really helped and is still helping. Along with the Butterfly Foundation, I also called Kids Helpline sometimes because they're there all the time and I could just talk if I needed to. And you're in control of when you call, how long the conversation goes. And and if you want to exit, you hang up. I did a couple of times when I was on the call say, I'm really sorry, but I just I need to go because maybe I just wasn't feeling like I could talk anymore right in that moment or I just wanted to go or I needed to go, whatever it was. So it was... Absolutely. Very much. So let's now bring in the whole aspect of social media. Em, talk to me about the impact that apps like Instagram have had on you. I would say social media has had both a positive and negative impact on me. The really negative impacts can be even simplest things like celebrities promoting something that just is meant to make you skinny or meant to make you Diet lollipops or... Exactly. No powder is going to make you as skinny as what they're showing and yet that's all that's being fed into the brains of kids. Mitch, talk me through what you see is the role that social media is playing in how boys and girls, men and women, are feeling about their bodies and their body image. I mean, you could talk about it all day, about yeah. the effects that it has on people. Um, you know, it can definitely have a negative experience. It can also be very positive. Um, but when we're looking at, when we're following pages that are so dominated by representing one body type, one type of person, one thing to do, one way to look, you start to build that mental representation of, well, this is what everyone looks like. And then when you see deviations in that, it causes a little bit of dissonance for you to think, mm. well, I don't look like that. And, you know, th- these kind of apps are very, they're very intuitive to learn what you like. So before you know it, you might like one photo of a, of a celebrity or a model. And then before you know it, your feeds are flooded with all of it. You know, th- these images that are on there are nine times out of 10 filtered. So they're not a representation of the actual photo. They're not a representation of the actual person. What are their intent? Most of the time it's to sell a product, particularly if it, if it is an influencer. We know that the best way to sell a product to someone is to appeal to their insecurities. And that's exactly what's happening. You know, celebrities have done it in the past with endorsements and stuff like that. So social media is just another avenue for that to occur. So to empower young people to actually be critical to that and through media literacy programs and stuff like that, to be able to see these kind of posts or these kind of images are potentially really harming me. So unfollow it. 
So just educating young people to to kind of own what's on their feed and to say, hey, it's actually okay to unfollow. It doesn't make you a bad person for unfollowing a celebrity who's thousands of miles away. It's because it's having a positive impact on your mental health. I don't know if it's equally affecting, but it is affecting boys, would you say? Absolutely. Um, for, For a very long period of time, we've spoken about eating disorders and we've spoken about body image predominantly being a a female thing. Um, And we know that's not the case. Um, Eating disorders don't know a gender. They don't know an age. They don't know a demographic. So would the the red flags be the same? They can be different. I mean, in in boys, it may be that there is a a more drive for a muscular figure because we're seeing that's the sociocultural ideal for for males is that very masculine, very muscular physique. Yes. Um, And in females, it's still that very you know, thin white kind of um, absolutely kind of image. So, um, if there is language around wanting to change behaviour or change your body to meet those kind of stereotypical ideals, that's they're kind of the red flags, and start to investigate that a bit more. And let's go back to you for a second. What are some of the practical things that the psychologist has perhaps recommended? One of the big things to me is going to the gym, not particularly to lose weight, look better, just to feel good about myself. Feel strong, maybe. Feel strong, to work up a sweat. And you, in that moment, I don't think about anything else. That's all that's on my mind. Or another thing is putting my headphones in and just walking. Also, hanging out with friends that make you feel good about yourself, that you can be yourself around. I have a strong friend group that I go to with everything now and whether we're having a good day or a bad day, we just hang out. And And if I could butt in, it's no longer the aspiration to be the cool kid. It's finding her tribe and she's found her tribe. That's brilliant. What advice would you have for the parents that they've perhaps got a child in primary school or high school that they can see is struggling? So whether it's sort of tears about going to school or um, spending more time in their room or changes in behaviour with food, what advice would you have to the parents about how they should handle that? As hard as it might be, talking can sometimes be the best thing, even if it's just sit down and say, nothing can happen out of this. I just want you to tell me honestly how you feel, whatever you want to say. Is there that fear that Mum and dad are going to make this worse. Oh, I'm going absolutely. to tell them and then mum and dad are going to go, right, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And you think, oh. That's one of the biggest reasons I didn't tell my parents in the beginning was because I knew they would do something and that would probably have made it worse at the time in my mind. So if you can just sit down with your kid and say, if you just want us to listen, we'll listen. If you want us to do something, we'll do something, that can be one of the best things sometimes. For all of us, sometimes we just want to vent and other times we are actually looking for solutions. So what's your relationship like now? It's definitely a lot better now. It's more like we're three people living in the house, not the parents and the kid. Amelia, Tim and Mitch, thank you so much for coming in today. I know that I have learnt so much in this episode, so I'm really grateful for all of you for sharing your story. So thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Beth. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Navigating Parenthood. All five episodes are available now. Subscribe and rate and head to hcf.com.au slash podcast for more information and useful links. And remember, 
If you're feeling depressed or anxious and need to talk to someone now, call Lifeline on 13 11 14.